Walsh here. Welcome to round 17 of Don the Stat. Sorry for the confusion over times. Um, yeah, had had the, the day job got the better of me today, so they're still paying the bills, um, and that had to uh, be prioritised. Welcome, as always, to my co-host, Ian Hume. Hume, how are you, mate? And remember to unmute yourself before you speak. Thanks for doing that because I've done the same thing I always do and, and don't mute my, don't forget to unmute myself and then talk for 30 seconds and leave blank space. But thanks for being on the ball there with that. Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, you're a bit of a roving, our roving reporter this week. You've made your way up to, to Queensland and going to be watching the game uh, up there. So what's, what is it like up there? Is it, is it, a bit, is it warmer? Or is, I heard it was, um, they had their coldest day uh, in 20 years the other day. So is it any better? Um, yeah, it's pretty nice today, mate. I, I don't know what's considered cold to the locals, but I think it was about 22 degrees today. Unfortunately, uh, or not unfortunately, because I, I do happen to like what I do for work, but yeah, up for work today and, and lots of meetings. So I wasn't out and about too much, but um, looking forward to the weekend and, and then getting to see my, my brother, as you know, moved up here with his family earlier in the year. So haven't seen my nephew since Easter time. So um, yeah, three three of them 10 well one the oldest is turning 10 on sunday actually so uh hopefully he's not listening because they don't know that i'm up here and it's all a big surprise so um so yeah that that's um yeah really exciting getting to see the footy uh is the bonus mate getting to see families is probably the real treat i think so it's, it's worked out well for you and and hopefully uh you know you're able to get a bombers win up there this week so that you can you know, have a, even more good memories about uh, this weekend. Yeah, um, that'd be nice. Yeah, and just before we do get into what we do, we we have acknowledged we have picked up a lot of listeners over the past couple of weeks, and for new listeners, it might be a bit uh, different in terms of of how we approach this show. And you just wanted to give a bit of an explanation about what we're trying to do here and and what what we go through. Yeah. So for those that are listening to this over the podcast networks we record this live on twitter so this is our way of saying excuse our horrible production values we're we're not big on production values but hopefully we're giving some value through uh through content uh obviously my my personal background uh working in footy for a long time uh, as a football analyst you know like to think I've, i've learned a thing or two in terms of understanding how the game's played. So, yeah, we're, we're trying to give, I guess, a balanced view of the good and the bad of, of what Essen do each week and how we can potentially approach uh, the upcoming game. And and you, like me, Hubie, are a massive stats nerd, so uh, it's not just about um, breaking down the numbers, but I guess trying to understand them and, and applying them to to what we see. So, yeah, thanks to everyone for the support, and, and hopefully that gives a little bit of context as to, A, what we're setting out to achieve, but B, also why there's lots of ums, ahs, pauses, um, breakdowns in audio and, um, and, and whatnot. So, so yeah, mate, should we get yeah. stuck into it and start with a bit of a review of the Swans game? Yeah, so we always start with a review of, of the previous week's game and what we do, or particularly you do, at the end of each episode is you sort of go through what things you think uh, the Bombers need to do in order to be successful. And what we then do is we sort of reflect on on that at the start of the next week's show. And then we look at, you know, just the game in, in more broad terms. So from last week, the first thing we wanted to look at was their intercept defenders. So uh, particularly in the Carton brothers and, and Blakey. And the thing that we that you said was that the forwards really needed to spread because uh, 
take him away from where the ball's landing is, is the key part of stopping intercept defenders. And so just in terms of their intercepts, so uh, Tom and uh, Tom and Paddy McCartan were plus one on their uh, intercept season average, while Blakey was average. So whilst we didn't completely nullify them in that aspect, uh, they were they were at average, so they didn't have an outstanding game there. And yeah, what were your thoughts with regards to that? Yeah, well, I think average is pretty good, isn't it? Like if you keep a, a, a keep a team to their their season average in an area that they're really strong with, then it you know. It, it ultimately means that they haven't got a huge level of ascendancy in that part of the game. I, I don't remember seeing Jones, Wright or Stringer really get in each other's way. They did that a lot against West Coast and, and in earlier games that they've played together. So, yeah, I thought um, I thought they did a really good job of keeping that separation. Um, you know, they, those guys still got the ball and they're still intercepted because they're so good at what they do. But I think especially after quarter time, we, we really restricted them being able to intercept in dangerous parts of the ground. The other thing I liked was the use of Wright. Even in the first quarter, he got up the ground and got involved early. And, uh, you know, in, in previous games, we, when he hasn't had Jones and Stringer there, we've seen him basically just get cold sitting down in the goal square trying to stay as that deep forward, hoping the ball would get down there. So, yeah, I think it just shows the value of having two or three genuine marking goal threats in your forward line um, that force opposition defenders to be more accountable. So, yeah, I thought it was good. Yeah, Yeah, and we probably saw, like, going back to the West Coast game in the second half where where a lot of those players were staying home. You saw Brass in particular able to cut off a lot of avenues to goal. So it does seem like they did learn from that, which, again, is what you want to see from an improving side. So the next thing we looked at was the users off halfback. So uh, Supercoach fans probably follow Jake Lloyd's stats pretty closely. So uh, they may have been upset with his results on the weekend because we managed to keep him down uh, minus five disposals and minus 50 metres gain, whilst Blakey, again, was pretty much on average. So again, it doesn't take much to to limit their involvement. You don't have to shut them out of the game, you know, an under under 10 disposal game. limiting, Limiting them, you know, 10, 15, 20% can have a big impact on your ability to be successful. Yeah, I think it was also what we were able to do in in restricting them in the second half as well, or, or at least um, evening more contests so that they weren't able to get that run and spread. Uh, you know, Lloyd, as you mentioned, had 19 disposals, which was five down on his season average, but only eight in the second half. Uh, Blakey in the first half had, sorry, in the first yeah, sorry, for the game, had 15 disposals, uh, but he had eight of those in the first quarter um, and had two intercepts and 287 metres gained. Uh, sorry, 258 metres gained. So, yeah, after quarter time, yeah, he only had the seven disposals, three intercepts and 144 metres gained. So we were really able to put the clamps on him. He was really hot early and um, and we were able to, to turn that around in the second half. So, yeah, again, I thought that was almost the best we've gone about restricting damaging half-back flankers this year. Yeah, absolutely. I think maybe the St Kilda game where I think uh, uh, Hill and Sinclair got a lot of the ball, but they were getting it in the sort of the back the yeah. back pocket or, or the like. So, um, but up up there definitely. And as you know, we won both those games. So when we can stop the half-back flankers and it's going to be a point, of, point we're going to talk about when we get to Brisbane, uh, is, gives us an ability to be in games. And the final point we, we talked about was winning clearances and making the most of it. Because one of the things that we identified was that the Swans are only 12th in the AFL for clearances and 14th for hitouts. So there's a real opportunity to gain ascendancy at clearance. 
we did talk about Perkins to Mills, but I think uh, we'll talk, talk a bit about Mills later because he was really interesting what happened with him on the weekend. But the pleasing thing was we were able to win the clearances and win the hitouts. And one of the things that really stood out to me was normally Essendon's really good at centre clearance, but often loses stoppage clearances. This, this round, it was, it was pretty even at centre clearances, but we had plus 10 stoppage clearances, which is our best result at least for, at least this year. Uh, I didn't go back any further, but I, it's very rare to see Essendon win the stoppage clearances by that much. So did you notice anything there as to how they were able to get on top in that scenario? Or was there, it just one of those days? Yeah, I, we'll talk a little bit more about it. I won't steal a thunder because we did get asked a little bit about how we treated Mills. So I, I've got a bit of a view on that. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's been an area that our game's been building in over the last month or so. And, um, uh, you know, Saturday was definitely the crescendo on the Well, hopefully not the crescendo. Hopefully we can go bigger and better again this week. But it was definitely, I agree with you, mate. It's the best I've seen us perform around stoppage in a long, long time. It, it was part of our game that was pretty poor last year as well. So, um, yeah, and, and we not only won in that area, but we were damaging from stoppage as well. So I thought it was really good. Yeah. And so just moving on to the game in general, it was sort of, the game really turned after the first quarter, and probably even if you if you being specific, after the first five or ten minutes of the second quarter, the game started to shift worse and then got onto that run of four or five goals in a row. So what do you think what do you think changed after quarter time? Because if you just take after quarter time, Essendon was ahead eighty one to fifty four, what was the big shift in the game from that point? Yeah, I actually don't think the first quarter was that bad. Um you know, we only only you know, we went in three goals down at three quarter time, which you know, it wasn't a huge margin. We did kick that one late in the last quarter, didn't we? So we, we got the game sort of from four goals back down to three. Um, we got we did get belted at stoppage early. So they won five of the first seven clearances and, and that set them up. But I think within that, we just made some sloppy mistakes and I reckon the Swans had a bit of luck too. So, you know, that first Papley goal should never have been allowed. Our defenders were all set up on the boundary side. So, you know, they basically all had their backs to the MCC member stand, which just allowed the, the entry inside their 50 to come into the space, which was, you know, basically at the goal mouth and Papley to turn around onto the ball first and, and snap it. And, and that was just sloppy defending to, to be set up that way and, and, and give up that position. Uh, the, the Warner's goal came from a stoppage and he's a, he's a really good emerging young player, um, uh, really hard worker, really strong at the contest. He's not a great kick though. And, He's not known for his creativity around goals, I, I wouldn't have thought. So that ball just sort of floated through and, and had a bit of luck there. And I reckon he could take that kick another 30 times and, and only get it you know, one or two more times. Then Buddy kicked that goal from outside 50. Uh, I'm not sure he marked it. I reckon it bounced off his chest, but, you know, it's Buddy. So he, he got the benefit of the doubt from the umpire. And then there was the one where Snelling just fluffed that really bad kick inside 50 where we had a loose target. And instead of us having a shot at goal, it went down the other end. So I just think there was some, in the chaos of the first quarter, which you often see, particularly against really good sides and, and games that have got a bit of heat in them, we were just a little bit sloppy, a little bit panicky, and then the Swans had a little bit of luck. So, I yeah, I don't think it was that bad, mate. I just think once the game settled down, we were able to to do the things that we were trying to do, which was to you know, get that separation forward, be really hard at the contest, be really physical at the contest and, and win our fair share of stoppage ball. Yeah. 
And I think even just on that, uh, one of the things we've talked about in previous weeks is we've talked about, you know, goal kicking luck or, or the ability to convert shots. And, you know, we've lamented the fact that, you know, that there's been games where we've been taking really poor percentage shots and not being able to hit them and, that, and that's cost us games. And, or there's been other days where teams have, have you know, kicked the lights out against us and, and kicked really hard, hard shots uh, more often than, than they should. And again, referring to AFLX score, again, a really good Twitter account to follow to get a uh, understanding of where shots are being taken and what the expected uh, likelihood of a person kicking it from there. You know, based, based on there, the Swan should have been up 92 to 76 at the end of the game. The result was different. And again, that's just one of those, the vagaries of the sport where sometimes you just have a day where, where you kick goals or you convert where the opposition isn't. So I think the best example of that for me is uh, if you look at the two snaps that Durham and, and Jones took uh, from the from the pocket and, and nailed those, and then you compare it to Sam Reid who had a similar shot and wasn't able, able to convert. You know, it's those, it's those small differences. And again, part, part of that is skill, but it's also, you know, the, the luck of the day. And sometimes the luck runs your way. And it seems like for the most part, we had that uh, with us uh, on, on the weekend against Sydney. Now, as you sort of pointed out, we, we did have a question about Callum Mills and he was really down on his, his performances so far this year. So he was held to 13 disposals, which is under 20, was the first time under 20 for this year. Uh, he produced zero inside 50s um, and then he only was able to get six uncontested possessions, whereas his lowest to this point of the year was 11. What was it? What, what did, is there something we targeted him or were the Swans trying to use him in a different manner today otherwise have been? Yeah, I, I have to admit it, it wasn't something that I noted. It, Mills is a bit of an unassuming player, isn't he? Like you can you can watch a Swans game and and not realise how much of the ball he gets. And 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 I, that happened to me when I watched the game live. I in the reverse, I, I sort of didn't notice that he wasn't involved. Um, but watching it back around, you know, on the replay a couple of times post game. It definitely looked to me that that Parrish was the one that went to him at stoppage. He didn't. He wasn't a high centre bounce attendee, but he was um, really prevalent at stoppages around the ground. So we suggested pre-game that that might be a role that Perkins would get because uh, he'd been doing a little bit of that over the last couple of weeks, uh, and it ended up being well. From my view, was it looked very much like it was Parrish sacrificing his own sort of ball hunting game. And, you know, keeping in mind that we've had, we're now able to use some of that midfield depth that we've been talking about because Shields back in really, really good form. Stringer's back playing good footy. Caldwell and Hobbs are coming through as well. So it looked to me that, yeah, Parrish was was minding Mills at stoppage, trying to, to basically keep him out of the way, create space for Shield and Stringer to get on the move. Uh, and, you know, he had a game high, seven tackles as well. So I, I think that's how we handled him at stoppage. And then, when he was on the wing, I think we just outworked him. Um, the number of times that Durham in particular just ran up and down that wing and got himself into dangerous areas and then worked hard back on defense was incredible. I, I mean, I, I'm not sure I've seen an Essendon winger work quite that hard in, in a game for a long, long time, but he wasn't the only one. Heppel uh, as well worked really, really hard and got dangerous and used the ball really well. Uh, and we had Langford, Martin and the likes rotating through there too. So I, I think it was those two things. Parrish at stoppage, restricting him there. And then wingers just o- working him over uh, and and being really good offensively and defensively. Yeah. 
And I think the just just finally on the on the Sydney game, we've we've talked about the last few weeks the Sydney, the previous Sydney game being sort of the low point of the season, and then since then there's been a general improvement in in a lot of the stats, and it's sort of played out in the last two or three weeks with a couple of wins. But it's as we've sort of been saying, it's been building for uh, building for the um, you know that period of time following the Sydney game. And I just wanted to point out uh, you know a couple of the stat differentials from that game. So if you compare the uh, this is this is the differentials between the teams from the round nine game and the round uh, the pr- last week's game. So, for example, disposals wise, uh, Essendon was down sixty three disposals in round nine, but were up eighty two in round sixteen. Uh, going inside fifty, uh, minus eighteen percent in round nine versus you know plus six percent in round sixteen. Uh, uh, clearances minus five round nine, plus eight round sixteen. Contested possessions minus thirteen to plus eight. Uncontested possessions, minus 53 to plus 66. Uh, took 19 more marks last week compared to 34 uh, back in round nine. Um, and even just even just tackles. So we were down 25 tackles last time, but we're also down 63 possessions, which means that we didn't have the ball and we weren't tackling. Whereas this game, we were down 12 tackles, but we were also plus 82 disposals, which, mean, which means we had the ball more at the time, which you would expect that we wouldn't have as many tackles. So although that doesn't necessarily sound great at the first point, when you start thinking about it, you know, it, it has a bit more understanding to that. So I guess, you know, it, it just shows what the team's been working on these past seven weeks has, has started to pay off there. And as we said, that progression from that, from that low point seems to have um, be really good. And as you say, hopefully it's not a crescendo. Hopefully it's not that high point. Hopefully it's something that continues to build throughout the remainder of this season into the next one. Yeah, absolutely. And the uncontested possessions, mate, is one that's, that really stands out to me. I think there's a bit of a, a perception that you, because our game, you know, so often is talked about bravado and contests and physicality and all of those kind of things that, that uncontested possession is almost seen as a negative. But I, it, it can be an indicator of, you know, stagnant, slow ball movement at times. But I think in this case, it's an indicator of really how hard we were working off the ball and working for one another to present options and, and to go from minus 53 uncontested possessions in round nine to plus 66. That's just a, a massive turnaround and says so much about our ability to work through the lines and, and pro, um, provide options to one another. And firstly, getting the ball at the contest, but then also once we've got it, securing it and using it really well. So, yeah, that, that one really stood out for me. Yeah, and hopefully, as, as I said, it's something that continues on for the rest of the year. So we're going to move on. We're going to move on to the, the news section. And the biggest news of the weekend, probably even bigger than the, the win against Sydney, was the VFLW uh, success, winning their premiership. Um, they're heading into their inaugural uh, AFLW season in the best way possible with a with a VFLW premiership, and it wasn't even, it wasn't even close to the stage for the final se- season. So I think across the three games, they only had two goals kicked against them, and you know they're winning games by 40, 50 points. So really, really good stuff. Obviously, the bittersweet with uh, Georgian and Scowan with the confirmed ACL will miss the first AFLW season for Essendon, but. Other than that, you, you couldn't ask to go into that season in a better position. Yeah, it was awesome, mate. I mean, such an impressive football team and it just dominated you know, pretty much the entire season. But certainly the final series, uh, you know, they, they comfortably beat the three opponents that they came up against. And um, I think that the bit that I really liked was, uh, was it the second quarter where the Saints really challenged them and had the ball in their forward line for 
pretty much the entire quarter and, and Essendon just kept defending and keeping the ball out. And um, when they were able to go down the other end, were able to score. Yeah, it's a pretty phenomenal performance to, to be able to maintain that level of performance throughout a whole season um, is a pretty incredible effort. So, yeah, hopefully, uh, or no doubt it will. That'll that'll springboard them into a really successful AFLW season. And uh, like we said last week, success breeds success. So, um, you know, seeing seeing the girls win hopefully means uh, good things for you know all of our teams and, and the entire club. Absolutely, really looking forward to that first game against Hawthorne in the uh, pre-finals by round. So. Obviously, Essendon and male season will be over by then, so we'll be able to focus entirely on that. Uh, in, other good, in other good news, Massimo D'Ambrosio is our third Rising Star nominee for uh, this season, uh, and he's the sixth in the last two years. So across, across the last three years, uh, Essendon has the equal most Rising Star nominees, uh, along with Gold Coast, uh, but all of Essendon's have come in the last two years with uh, Cox, Jones, Perkins... Uh, last year, and then Martin, uh, Hobbs, and now D'Ambrosio this year. So, you know, it's not necessarily a guarantee of success, but when you've got that many recognisable quality young players coming through, you know, you, you, you can see that you're building something there. And he, he's coming, he probably hasn't, you know, it's hard, to, it's hard to say he's had the most impact of a debutant this year when you have Nick Martin kicking five goals on debut, but, you know, you already feel really safe with him as a as a distributor. Some of the Some of the kicks he's pulling off, you know, the, just the weight and the and the the dare of, of some of the some of the uh, options he's taking is really opening up uh, our ability to move the ball. And you know, more more comfortable he gets in in this environment, you know, the better off we're going to be. Yeah, I, I think you get carried away with a bit of hype when a new player comes to the club, and we were going so poorly when he came in that um, it was a bit like a diamond in the rough, but. There's some things about his game that I think are, are just really special. He, uh, the way that he's able to win the ball in a contest and and use his hips to to get a little bit of space and and buy himself a little bit of time to assess his options are, are really unique. The way he's able to not just kick the ball really well, but demand players to come at him or to move into a position and to put the ball there, and he can. He can hit multiple types of kicks. He can hit the you know the the long ones to space that allow someone to run a jump at it. He can hit the low flat ones. He can hit the angle kicks. So he he's just got so many weapons by foot that yeah, it's just really really impressive to watch. Um, and the other thing that I I think he's really good at is he's really good at absorbing impact and still getting off his kicks. So rather than rushing and just throwing it on the boot, he's prepared to wear a bump or a tackle to delay his kick to. Um, you know, to the right moment before he disposes of it. So, yeah, there's there's just some really special things about the way that he disposes of the ball that, yeah, I, without, at the risk of getting too carried away, I, I'm not sure I really remember one, at least recently, um, an Essendon player who's been able to do that by foot. So, uh, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. And I did read that he's the... He's the first mid-season draftee to be nominated in the year that he's been drafted in. So um, someone on Twitter commented that they couldn't believe he'd been nominated because he'd only been in the system for 10 minutes, to which I replied that, yeah, it's been a bloody good 10 minutes, and, and it has. So, yeah, he's exciting, man. Absolutely. And just something something from the past came up this week. Uh, it's 21 years since the Gary Moorcroft mark, and I... I, I watched that. I watched the video highlights of that on YouTube. There's like a, a four or five minute cut where 
Uh, he takes the he takes the mark. I mean, ideally, you, you call it Scott Lucas kicks on his right foot. That's probably his um, probably his bigger highlight of that of that moment. But just the way that uh, I think it's Bruce uh, Dermott and Robert Walls are going on about the mark for the next five minutes. There's something infectious about it. Um, you were there that night. Uh, what were your memories of that? Yeah, we, we were chatting about this before. I actually, I was there and I remember I was, I was in the box and I do remember the reaction to the mark. Everyone it was just sort of in awe and in shock and people in the box stood up and, yeah, it was pretty crazy. But I actually don't remember anything else about the game, mate. Um, mm-hmm. So, which is weird for me. I, I have a little bit of a Rain Man-like memory when it comes to... Um, to games, so yeah, I think on this one, maybe it was just the fact that the Moorcroft mark was was such a, um, a you know spellbinding event that it sort of overread everything else in my memory bank from that one. But yeah, it was an incredible mark, and and he'd had a really sort of yeah, he'd had a really good game, hadn't he? Like he was just on fire at that point. So um, yeah, it's great to see it's still getting replayed ad nauseum twenty one years later, mainly because it was on Brad Johnson and he has to live with it. Absolutely, don't don't mind seeing that every having him having to react to that every every couple of years on that. Yeah, right. Absolutely. So what we what we're going to do now is we're going to move on to selection, and uh, unusually for us lately is we're we're doing this show before uh, selection has been done, um, even the extended selection that's going to be taking place uh, because of the Sunday game. But so a lot of what we can say in the next five five or so minutes might be completely invalidated. In, uh, in about uh, 45 minutes time from when, when we're recording this. So take it with a pinch of salt. But I think we everyone's sort of in agreement that it's really about McGrath coming in and who, who goes out for him. So, I mean, the the most common options I'm seeing are one of Guelphie or Snelling moves to the sub the sub role and you sort of rejig everything around there. But then how many defenders are you playing? Do you have to make a harsh call on one of those defenders? Or... There were reports that Parrish had suffered a, a, a bit of a calf niggle uh, at training earlier in the week. Do, does Parrish potentially missing, you know, save the save the selectors from having to make a difficult call? You probably don't want to, You don't want to speculate on on Parrish not playing. So, assuming that Parrish is in the side, what do you think they're going to do in that situation? Yeah, you look at the the variables, don't you? So, Zerk Thatcher last one in, or sorry, yeah, last one in, first one out. Well. Uh, three key forwards at Brisbane, we probably need the tall coverage. And he played, you know, his, his real breakout game, I think. So, you know, if he's going to have a strong career at the club going forward, you, you wouldn't want to drop him after that performance and, and maybe derail his development and his confidence. So I think regardless of that anyway, I think we just need to play the three talls. Um, they've got a lot of really dynamic, fast um Energetic forwards, uh, you know, McCarthy, Bay, Zach Bailey, um, Charlie Cameron, etc. So we're going to need coverage down there. Like McGrath, you would think, would just be a, a safe set of hands to come in and play on Charlie Cameron. I know um, Jay Kelly did a really good job on him last time, but is McGrath that better option? I, like, I, I tend to think that he is, but... Kelly, I thought, also played his best game for the club last week. I know he defensively made some errors and I've been a, a tough judge, but I do really commend him for the way that he kept working offensively and it was definitely uh, the best work that he's done there. So, I mean, that would be the, the move that I would make. I'd leave Kelly out, but I don't think that they will do that. I think, well, I don't know what they'll do, mate, to be honest. I'm, I'm 
I'm guessing. I, I'm really, I'm really unsure. I, I, I think it's either Kelly case sli- slides out, McGrath goes back, or Snelling goes to the sub bench. You couldn't drop Guelphie after his effort in the last quarter. Um, he's also been, I mean, he only kicked the one behind on the weekend, but he's, he has been consistently hitting the scoreboard. Uh, and I'm not sure we win that game without his contested effort in the last quarter. Um, and then, you know, McGrath slides back and, and maybe him and Redmond sort of rotate wing half back and Durham can play a bit more time forward, which we've seen him do lately. So I, I guess, yeah, Snelling or Cali are the two options, but geez, who knows? Uh, that's a tough one. I'm not sure what will happen. It is, and by the time most people are listening to this, the decisions will be made anyway. So a lot of what we've said here is probably going to be a moot point. So, and one thing I, I can guarantee you, mate, is that the fans will be outraged and upset, and Twitter will be flooded with comments about it. Unless it's just unless it's just McGrath in and no one's out, and we have to wait until tomorrow to to find out. I think that's probably what will happen with the extended bench. So they'll have a bit of time to think about how to respond to that. Let's, well, let's start looking at Brisbane. So, obviously, it's another double up for Essendon, although it's a bit more of a gap between uh, games with Brisbane than it was with Sydney. So, obviously, we played Brisbane in round two, and it was one of those one of those games we've talked about this year where we probably had the opportunities to win, but we weren't good enough in front of goal, whilst Brisbane were a lot better at taking their opportunities, which is something they've been quite good at all year. So, since playing Essendon, Brisbane have gone nine and four. They are in the top four, but the three of their four losses... Uh, have been to the other top four sides. So they've lost to Melbourne, Fremantle and Geelong. The other loss was to Hawthorne in round 10. And that game was uh, characterised by the fact it was pretty much a shootout. So it was both both teams scored over 100, 110 points from memory. I think the Hawks uh, came back uh, through the latter part of the third and the fourth quarter before uh, Brisbane kicked a couple goals late to bring it back close. But the Hawks got the chocolates there. So Brisbane are the best defensive side in the league. So they're number one for points four. Um, one of the things that really stands out to me with that is that they're very, they've got a lot of different avenues to uh, engage in scores. So their top two score involvement players are Lockie Neal. He, he gets uh, seven score involvements a game and then McCluggage with six a game. But they're their only two players in the top 50 for score involvements. If you compare that to a, another high scoring team like the Bulldogs, they have eight players in the top 50 for average score involvements. What that says to me, given given they've got you know so few high performers, but they're still the top scoring team in the league, that says to me that they have a, a variety of avenues to goal. It's not just they're not just relying on a certain core of players to provide avenues to goal, which makes it really difficult to defend against them. So if you're able, you can shut down one of their avenues, but they'll have you know four or five other ways to get to get get to goal. So I think that's something to to consider when we're looking at Brisbane. The thing that does, again, that stands out for them compared to particularly the other top four sides is their defence. Their defence is probably the leakiest of... uh, Their defence, sorry, their defence is definitely the leakiest of the top four sides and they can see the second most inside 50s of any of the top eight sides with Richmond being the first. So like they did against uh, us in round two, they gave us scoring opportunities. We just weren't good enough on the day to take them. So at, at at our best, we're going to get opportunities to score, which means we need to take... Uh, advantage for them. Now, another thing is because they are a high-scoring side uh, and they concede a lot of points, it le- means leads to a lot of uh, centre stoppages. So Brisbane concede the most centre clearances of any side, uh, and they win, uh, but they still win the fourth most centre clearances. So it's not a huge differential for them. They're only down 0.8, but 
as we've talked about in the past, center clearances is a strength for Essendon. So they do give up a lot of center clearances, which is, again, is a point where we can uh, potentially be pushed for success. And they're also um, the best contested, contested marking side in the competition, as you'd imagine, from having, you know, Danaher, Hipwood, McStay in their forward line, as, as well as some of their other players are really good contested marks. So, again, there's something to consider there. So I guess that, that, that's the sort of things that I've identified from Brisbane. What are the what are the things you've uh, think about? You've looked at their last two. Uh, sorry, you've looked at their last two games. I think the Melbourne loss and the the game against the Dogs last week. What have you picked up from that? Yeah, it's tough because they've been playing teams and and ultimately lost to teams in their three of their four losses, as you mentioned, were to top four sides. So we you know we can't pretend to be as ambitious as what the way they go about things, certainly not Melbourne. But, um, but yeah, I, I did go back to have a look at, at both of those games just to see what was different in their wins versus their losses. And I think what was interesting, um, the first quarter against Melbourne was a, a pretty even game, but Lockie Neal was by far the, the most dangerous prison player on the ground and Harms went to him after quarter time and pretty much just shut him out of the game. Um, and then, you know, in the second quarter, Melbourne kicked six six to Brisbane's one goal. They, you know, they smashed them in the clearances, fifteen to seven. They were plus twenty two at contested possession, and then they were able to create turnovers in Brisbane's defensive pass. So they just put them under so much pressure, and, and Brisbane basically cracked. And there was actually Brisbane are a lot better team than the Swans at their best, and and we're obviously not Melbourne um, either. But there there was a fair bit about it. Um, that reminded me of that dominant period that we had against Sydney last week where we were able to kick sort of five or six goals in, in a row. There was sort of a similar DNA imprint on it. Um, prior to last week, or, or sorry, prior to the, going into the Melbourne game, that was that the Lions had scored 33 and a half points per game from forward half stoppages, which puts them second in the AFL. And, and Melbourne just really went and, and took that away from them. Um, they... Yeah, they, they just didn't allow them to win stoppage, which then didn't allow them to obviously score from from that source. Um, they ranked number one, Brisbane scores from turnover. Uh, they averaged 19 um, points a game or plus 19 points a game. Uh, and Melbourne actually went the other way on them and went plus 51. So they just put so much pressure on them and, and forced them into errors. Um, and then they ranked... Number or well, they rank number one in the AFL as you mentioned for for goals per inside fifty conversion and again Melbourne just restricted that and, and you know they went from twenty six percent to sixteen in that game um, and then I think last week was against the Dogs was a bit different um, against the Dogs the Lions got basically just got the game on their own terms especially in the second half um, and you know I think Brisbane are the the best goal conversion side or the goal to behind conversion side in the IFL. But um, ironically, last week, it was really just Lions bad kicking that kept the dogs in the game. I think they were 1-5 at quarter time and 6-9 at half time, and then kicked 10 goals, 3 in the second half. So, you know, even though the dogs were able to generate more scoring shots and clearance, they weren't able to convert. Um, so it was, yeah, 2 goals, 10 to Brisbane, 6 goals, 3. Uh, Brisbane lost the clearances. Um and, and stoppage and uncontested possessions, but um, their backs kept them in the game and, and they were able to launch scores from there. So, yeah, sort of two really different um, two different games. One they won quite easily and, and one they got smashed in. Yeah. I mean, so you've actually gone back and looked at, at their loss 
at their losses and, and sort of look for some sort of common factors. Again, as you pointed out, most of their losses against against top you know four sides with really strong defenses. Which you know how much can a team like Essendon take from that? But you, you've identified a few things that potentially could be could be targets for Essendon. Yeah, definitely. So they lost to Hawthorne, which uh, you know you you would think. You know, Essendon Hawthorne equal on points. Maybe that's the one we can take inspiration from. What did Hawthorne do that we can do? But that game was a real shootout. It was a real high-scoring game. And I reckon if you think back to two weeks ago in our game against West Coast, that was a shootout. Do we want to get caught in in that kind of environment um, or that kind of game? I'm not sure we do. I think we're better off um, avoiding that. So, yeah, and particularly given Brisbane's depth of quality forwards, as you mentioned, that they've got so many guys that are capable of, of getting involved in scoring chains. So uh, I think that's the exception to the rule. Uh, I think if we look at their other three losses and, and see what we might be able to replicate out of those to give us ascendancy, I think that that's where we're best served. So against Melbourne, they were minus 38 in contested ball, but in their other three losses, they actually won contested ball. So winning or losing contested ball is not the differentiator to, to Brisbane winning or losing. What is really interesting though is they lost uncontested ball by 52 against Geelong. They lost it by 30 against Frio and they lost it by 45 against Melbourne. And I actually think for them, a lot of it starts at the stoppages around the ground. So like us at center clearance, they're really aggressive and get on the attack and try and score. Stoppages are a little bit different. They, they set up the game. We spoke about this round two. They set up stoppages with basically two rings an inner ring and an outer ring. And they're, they're, game plan is to try and get the ball on the outside and set up their kick mark game. They're number one for kicks, number three for marks in the AFL. If they can't get it on their own terms, they'll just lock it in. They'll try and get a repeat stoppage. But if they can, they get it out and away they go. In their, in their wins, they, they're plus one and a half at stoppages. So they you know they do enough to break even, get a little bit of ascendancy and allow them to set up their uncontested play. In their losses, they're minus eight at stoppage. Um, and, you know, granted that they're against high-quality teams, but as we talked about earlier, they're, um, you know, they're, it's a part of the game that we've really been building on against the Swans. You know, we, we were plus 10. So I think it's that's going to be a part of the game that we, we'll really have to go to work on is, is how can we, we win enough stoppage ball and restrict them from winning stoppage ball is probably more to the point um, and take away that kick mark uncontested um, game style from them. Yeah, absolutely. So, in terms of in terms of players you wanted to highlight, normally we when we're highlighting players, you're not necessarily highlighting the superstars. You know, the Lockie Neals or the Joe Danaher's. We're more into who the un, who are the unknowns who can get under under the guard because there's a few times where you know players that you don't necessarily think are going to be an issue um, bob up and, and do damage. I, I remember back to the Bulldogs game, a couple of the players, a couple of their small forwards that you identified that weren't Cody Waitman really sort of took us apart there. So who are, who are the players that you've identified this week uh, that uh, need to be watched? Yeah, I, I think we can be pretty confident that the media is going to talk about Lockie Neal's track record against Essendon, and that's going to get, you know, rightly so, but that's going to get lots of airtime. And then uh, Joey Danaher, for obvious reasons, will get talked up a lot. And if you were uh, new to the game, you'd think that Brisbane were playing with two players. Um, but... Oscar McInerney is one. I think most people, you know, who follow footy would know him, um, Brisbane's ruckman. Uh, they might not quite appreciate how good he is. He, he's a seriously good ruckman, and and you know wouldn't look out of place in the All Australian top forty squad. Um, he's got the best hit, uh, hit out win rate, so he wins fifty four percent 
um, of his hit-out contests or ruck contests since round 10. So, yeah, he's been really effective of late and he's number three in the AFL for hit-out. So he, he's someone that Sammy Draper is going to have to be on top of his game to beat. He's also one of their better um, or higher-ranking stoppage clearance players as well. And then yeah, they haven't had a lot of kids play big games this year, but Noah Answorth, you know, he's been around for a while. He's been on this since 2019, um, originally drafted in 2018 at pick 55. But he's a, a really sort of hardworking, medium-sized defender, come midfielder, uh, really contested, good tackler. Um, and he's a neat kick without being, you know, damaging. So I think he's one that, yeah, you might spot having a bit of an impact and, and not know who he is. But, yeah, he's, he's sort of played 15 games this year and, and um, yeah, held his spot in a pretty good side. So he's, he's obviously doing a lot right. Yeah, so we'll definitely we'll definitely keep an eye on on those two. I think obviously, uh, I think we we didn't talk about the selection, but I think we expect that Sammy Sammy Draper will go in as the number one ruck, and they won't bring back Phillips and, and rely on Wright as that that second option with the other other forward options they have. Meaning they they feel they can they can put Wright into the ruck and not lose out too much. So big another big game for for Sammy. I think particularly the second half he he. I've, the Sydney game, he had a lot more influence in, than the first half, and he'll he'll need to do similar against McInerney. Well, let's let's move on to the next next uh, phase then in the match tactics. So, what are the things that Essendon need to do in order to be successful this week? And these are the things that we'll review uh, at the start of next week's show. Yeah, I, I think we we found a bit of a blueprint for beating Brisbane in the way that we beat Swans. So, um, at risk of putting on uh, sounding like a broken record, I think there's some things that are, that are quite similar. Um, uh, Forwards separating to, to limit intercept marks is really important again. So we spoke about that last week. The Swans, Brisbane's not a lot different. Harris Andrews is their number one interceptor with seven a game. But he's also one who I reckon gets quite nervous when he's caught one out. And, and against someone like Wright, who will probably get him a fair bit of the time, uh, you know, with, with Peter Wright's extra height and reach, I wouldn't be surprised if, if Wright can get him in enough one-on-one contests that we see Harris Andrews give away free, free kicks just because he, he gets a little bit worried by having to play on someone of that size. Um, Marcus Adams is next, 6.7, um, uh, intercepts a game. And, and again, he's he's been a really important key defender. But we now have those two key forwards down there with, with Jones as well that can keep them busy. And Darcy Gardner's been another really good defender for them this year, but he's out injured. So uh, so without him, yeah. uh, their next one, Stasevich, who, who may well end up having to get the stringer match up. So I think we can stretch them down there. And uh, the the best way to do that is is as we did last week, is, is for those three guys to keep, keep yeah. separated, keep busy, hold their width, um, sorry, hold their depth and, and, uh, and make sure that they're presenting at the ball. Yeah, and I think just just going back to Andrews and Wright, I think if you remember back to the Brisbane game, that the first quarter Peter Wright played was exceptional, and Har- Andrews had no answer for him. I think Wright kicked two goals, um, but was all all over the ground. And I think the commentators were describing him as carry esque, and, and and Andrews was really struggling there. He didn't obviously keep that up for the rest of the game, but you know some of the form that he's been in, if he if he brings that, then again, you know Harris Andrews is going to have to worry a lot about Peter Wright and not be able to act as that interceptor. Yeah, spot on. Uh, so the next one, mate, is is just building on that stoppage theme that, that we spoke about. So you get on top of clearance and, and get on top of stoppage for, for those very reasons. Stoppage and intercepts, that sets up their uncontested game. So 
if we can take those two things away from them or, or at least limit them, then we go a long way to limiting their primary um, their primary scoring sources and, and obviously give ourselves a chance to, to score as well. So Neil's their number one at stoppage. He averages four and a half a game. And, and I think we just need to send Parrish, if he's playing, touch wood he is, uh, to, to Neil at stoppage and just take him out, sacrifice his own game again and, um, and, and you know, let our other key midfielders go to work. Uh, Lions is their next one, but it drops down to three again. McInerney as well, three again. But uh, again, you know, Draper should be able to, you know, Draper at his best should be able to take that away from McInerney. So let's just lock down on Neil, mate, and, and take him away and, and, um, and yeah, take away their big strength. Uh, the other one that I would do is lock down on Coleman. So, uh, yeah, Coleman is a young player at halfback who's had a really, really good season and, and been building over the last couple of years. But no Daniel Rich this week, uh, who's a player that's always got on top of us. He's their number one metres game player, averages 583 a game. He's not there. It's then a big drop down to their second player who averages 404 a game, and he's not there either, Dane Zorko. Uh, then it's Lyons and McCluggage who play through the midfield and Neil, sorry, as well. And then it drops down to, to Coleman, who's sixth at... 333. So he'll be their, their main distributor through halfback. He'll try and run and create and, and take the game on. So depending on, on how selection plays out, uh, if, if it's Guelphie or Snelling, uh, one of them I think just needs to, to be mindful of him and try and restrict his influence on the game. Uh, they can't replace Daniel Rich. They'll be trying to, to get that through other players and Coleman will be the one they look to to be creative back there. So let's try and take him out of the game. And then last but not least, mate, I'd really like to see us make McCluggage uncomfortable. McCluggage is a really, really good young player. Um, uh, He's a real weapon for them. Uh, And, you know, one of the the rising mids in the comp. But I don't think he likes it overly physical. And I think if we can take him to to parts of the ground that he doesn't want to go, so take him deep into our forward line. And and as I mentioned, a bit like we were with Parker last week where there was a, a chance to, you know, tackle him into the ground, bump him, and Durham, Draper, Redmond, these guys, just just let him know that he's going to have a tough day at the office. And I think when that happens to him, he gets flustered quite easily and, and forgets about his own game and forgets about work rate and starts to worry about where the next hit's coming from. So, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see some of that hard edge that we saw bits of come uh, in the Swans game come out again and, and make the club into the target for it. Absolutely. Well, as always, we'll be keeping an eye on those uh over, over the course of the game and, and going over that again this time next week. Now, we always finish with our, our final thought and I ask you a question and, and you give a bit of a response there. So, finish this thought. After his, after his excellent performance in the last quarter of, of last week, whose uh, centre-bounce attendances will get reduced so Hobbs is in there more uh, across the game? Uh, no one, mate. I, I think he had that impact last week because of the way that he was managed through the game. I I think he was able to have that influence on the game because he didn't go in until the last quarter. So he was coming up against blokes that were fatigued. Think back to the, the Fremantle game. Um, you remember we, our midfielders were just exhausted and by, by, you know, halfway through the third quarter and they were up against blokes like Mundy and, um, Sorry, mate, I've forgotten his name. The guy that got across from Gold Coast. Um, oh. You've forgot, you forgotten his name too. I've forgotten him too, yeah. Everyone else knows who I mean. Um, uh, Brody, Will Brody. 
Sorry. Yeah. And, um, and they'd only played about 60% game time. So uh, it makes a big difference, I think, fresh players coming in against guys who are starting to fatigue in the last quarter. So long way of answering that question, mate, but I wouldn't change anything. I think it worked because of the way we went about it. We've been rotating our mids more over the last few weeks. We haven't got stale and just ran with the same three, you know, over and over and over again like we were in the start of the season. And I think it's working for us. And I, I think introducing Hobbs into the piece late when he was fresher against the fatiguing Sydney midfield was part of the reason that, that he was able to have the influence that he um, that he was made. So don't let's not be in a rush. Let's not overburden him. Um, yeah, if it's not broke, don't fix it. I like it. Very good. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of today's show. Uh, just an announcement. Well, we've got the second of our bonus series where we're interviewing fans, whether they've got a story, a particular story to tell or just to talk about them and their experience as an Essendon fan. So uh, look out in your pod feeds on Monday. I've got an interview between myself and uh, Todd Davey. So if you're on Twitter and you're an Essendon fan, you've probably come across Todd's uh, great work. So it was really good chatting with him about his experiences as an Essendon fan and his thoughts on the team going forward. So as I said, that'll come out Monday morning. Uh, Any final thoughts? Any other uh, final things from you, Jono? No, I'm all good, mate. I'm looking forward to that one. It'll be the first uh, Domestat episode I actually listen to because I, I don't listen back to them. So I wasn't there for the interview, mate. So I'm, I'm listening, looking forward to having listened to your chat. It'll keep me entertained on the flight home from Brisbane. Absolutely. It was, it was, I, I, I really enjoyed it and I hope the listeners do too. Uh, thanks again, everyone. Uh, thanks for sharing it and, and getting involved uh, in, in conversation with us on Twitter. We really appreciate it. Um, all the reviews, all the all the support we're getting. Other than that, uh, go Dons. Go Dons. Cheers, mate.